0: Thanks Leah so much Uh, and welcome everyone to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. Great to see you all. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Thanks for visiting today if you're brand new as uh, Spen said before. Um, We are in the Gospel of John right now as Leah actually just mentioned and so we're going to continue today with John chapter 13. We'll be in verses 31 to 38. If you uh, enjoy or if it helps you to read along with a Bible you have or a phone app, please turn there with me. This will be on screen here as well. Uh, This is part three of three of John's Last Supper narrative, so uh, we're kind of right in the middle of the book, but the last half of the book has to do with Jesus' last few days of life before his crucifixion and his crucifixion and his resurrection and post-resurrection appearances, but all of that is is about a week long's worth of time. Uh, It is Thursday night of Holy Week. It's just hours before his arrest, and Jesus is having dinner with people. And when he has dinner with people at this Last Supper, this Last Supper before his arrest, he makes a New Testament, a New Covenant with them, teaches them about theology, about himself, about themselves as well. So there's Christology, there's anthropology, there's a theology of sin. All of that kind of comes together very beautifully. It's In, in a sense, it's, it is the climax, you could say, of the book. The cross is really when he's dying, that is the ultimate climax, but this is such a cross-centric uh, kind of idea, and it's so imminent that we are really there. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a very heavy, not in a... Um, uh, this is hard to do kind of way, but a heavy as, as, as in this is a significant thing. Uh, and there's a lot he has to say here about himself. There's a, this thing that's called the New Commandments he gives to his people, which is very significant. If you, uh, if you know Jesus, the voice of, of your shepherd or the shepherd, you know that he doesn't always talk in these terms. And so when he does, um, we should perk up and, and listen and learn. And so um, that and more. But let's, uh, let's dive right in today. We're going to look at this idea of there are some things we can't do, and, and that's okay. I'll come back and explain that in a minute, but uh, we'll start here in verse 31 to 38. I'll read it in full to begin. So when Jesus had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That last part just being an idiom basically for it's, it's going to happen tonight. Uh, before dawn, you will deny that you know me three times. And so that's coming later in the story. All right, so let's start with the, um, the you can't do this uh, part of the passage, and we'll kind of go from there. Um, so Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, before we delve deeper in, into the details here, I think it's important just to see that, and this is not the first time that Jesus does this. If you've been with us in this series or read John before, um, maybe you've seen this as well elsewhere. But, um, but John uh, is, is at pains to show this, and Jesus does this more than once. Uh, he says that there are things we can't do. Um, and so it's, it's not, and I mentioned before, I think, earlier in the series that when Jesus does this, it's not exactly the epitome of a motivational speech, uh, but how that's part of the point and how that exemplifies who Jesus is for us. Uh, that is, one who will say, you stay here while I go to work for you. Uh, or I think of Exodus fourteen fourteen, even in the Old Testament when God is saying things like, I, I will fight for you, all you have to do is be silent. Uh, elsewhere in Deuteronomy, he says the same thing, kind of commemorating the Exodus and how that was a one way act. It was a one way love, uh, not something that Israel helped him in or any, or any such thing. Uh, or even think about how Jesus says at Gethsemane at the, in the garden before he's arrested. And this is actually John's Gethsemane passage because it doesn't have like a Gethsemane proper passage like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. But when Jesus says there, you stay here while I go and pray. Remember that? You stay here while I go over here and pray. Same kind of idea. Uh, Jesus draws this thick, clear line between himself and the disciples when it comes to action, when it comes to uh, doing things. And, And there are things that they are not to participate in. And the reason this is the case is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is about love, not lesson. It's about love, not lesson. And all we have to do is kind of keep reading to see this. And we ask the question, like, where is he going that we cannot go? Uh, and uh, the answer is um, to be glorified. And and where is that exactly? Where does he get glory? On the cross. Uh, He's going to die for us and to rise and ascend to be with his Father. And so Jesus is not simply saying here, heaven's not a place that you can currently reside in, but he's getting more specific than that. He's saying, you cannot die for the sins of the world. You cannot cooperate with me in that. Uh, You can't do anything at all to save yourself or... To atone for your or others' sin, that's my job. Or like Frodo to Sam, the ring's my burden to bear. Uh, You can't assist me or cooperate with me in the work of salvation. This is not a team project, but a one-way love that I'm eager to express to you. So I was thinking this week of um, kind of a sister verse to share with this idea, which is helpful to you, by the way, if you're new to reading the Bible, or even if you're not, like I'd encourage you guys in this uh, to kind of mix genres when you think about theology. So if there's like a story or a narrative that kind of exemplifies something about God's character, about the gospel, some kind of facet uh, there that you're, that you're staring at, maybe look at one of the letters of the New Testament and say, well, how does the letters flush this out or kind of help show it in a more prepositional or more clear, explicit way? Um, or maybe the Psalms or the prophets or somewhere else in the Old Testament. Um, And so I was thinking about that this week, and there's many places to go, but I think one of the places, best places to see this is in Romans 10, verses 5 to 9. Let me read this for you guys. It says, uh, Paul writing to the church in Rome, he says, Moses writes about this, this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, To bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, so a lot going on here, but the big thing to see is the contrast between these two kinds of righteousness in the Bible and in history one is by doing, and one is by believing. Moses said, if you do the law, then you will live. The ones who, quoting Leviticus 18.5, if you do it, then you will have life. But the gospel says, don't think in doing terms at all. Don't think about ascending, going up to find God, or ascending by what you do, nor uh, should you think about descending, going down to find Christ, because he's already gone there for you and come back. So don't think about where you can go to get righteousness or to access Christ, as if he's waiting for you somewhere. Instead, know that he has come all the way to you. He is near. And so belief is all that's required. Not just a conversion, but for all of the Christian life. And John 13 is really saying the same thing. When Jesus says, you can't go where I am going, he's saying, don't think in your heart, uh, who shall ascend or how shall I ascend? Don't think in your heart, where should I go into the depths to find God or to do enough for him? Uh, Instead, this is my work. Um, you are to stay while I go pray. You are to stay here while I go to Calvary. I am going to establish a New Testament, not keeping with the old one that was built on your works, because I'm not like Moses, telling you what to do. I'm acting on your behalf. All right, so that's the first part of this. Jesus is saying, you can't do this. You can't come with me to Calvary. You can't come with me uh, because the work of the gospel is completely and in every way, one way. But then he says this, but this is what you can do. And we read verses 34 and 35 again. He says, "A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another." All right, so again, he's saying you can't join me on the cross. That's my work, but you can love one another. That's something you can work on. You can reflect my love for you to one another uh, in in the church, all right? So disciples are kind of like proto-Christians here. They're kind of like the picture of what Christians would be post-cross. They're called ones. They're identified ones. They're loved ones, saved by grace, being saved by grace, not by works. And so when Jesus says one another, he's talking to them. To the 11 who are still there, Judas left, if you remember, when he betrayed Jesus, he's already gone. But to the rest of the 11, love one another. So this is not like a, a call to global love for the global church, although that's a good thing. He's saying very specific and practically love the people that you see, the Christians you see uh, with, with your eyes. And, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you he were here for that, when Jesus told the disciples after he washed their feet, he said, uh, this is, there, there's a lesson in this, that there is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching you right now. This is a teachable moment. Uh, as I'm washing your feet, you are to wash one another's feet. Not wash his feet, but wash one another's as an example of his love for them. So I kind of like talked about a pyramid, how there's this kind of top-down, one-way love of God washing our feet, and he never asks us to wash his, never asks us to serve him. But then like from there, it spills out horizontally for, for, uh, into the church and our relationships on that human level, where he does say, well, you can wash one another's feet, though, and I actually am expecting that and wanting you to do that. So that it reflects the vertical, it reflects that kind of top-down thing, and so. But but again, the purpose is almost sacramental, uh, like baptism and communion. Christians serving and loving one another is an emblem of Christ serving us through his substitutionary death, uh, because to serve is to suffer in some way. Um, you can't like serve somebody without suffering in some way, even if you're just losing some time or a little bit of energy, or a little bit of, a little more breathless, breathlessness comes from that suffering, uh, or that serving, you can't serve without suffering in some way. And I would add, you can't love without suffering. Uh, love and suffering go together. You can't love someone uh, without giving yourself away, and being hurt a little bit, or losing a bit of yourself, dying so that someone else might uh, be comforted, and, and, and lifted up, and built up. And that's why I think actually in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, you really don't see this call, this command to love God. Uh, actually, in First John 4, it says, uh, this, is, this is love. Not that you've loved God, church, uh, but that he's loved you. And how did he love you? By, by dying for your sins. And so, uh, because we're not asked to suffer for God. Uh, and love and suffering go together. And that's, this is why I think you see this. Not that we don't love God. Of course, as Christians, of course we do. We live out of that. But it's a different kind of love. We don't suffer for him, he suffers for us. He's not asking us to bleed for him, he bleeds for us. And so his his love is always going to be bigger, always more comprehensive, always more defining of what it means to be a Christian and to believe and live and to live out of that and to to in him live and move and have our being every single day of our lives. And so that's actually what's uh, new about it. If you go out to verse 34, notice Jesus says this is a new commandment. That's a key word here because Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament laws here. He could have said, look at what what Moses said. Moses said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He could have said that, but he didn't. He said, I'm giving you a brand new one that Moses never said. This is a New Testament with new stipulations and laws and covenantal ideas and, and teachings. This is brand new. So he's not quoting the old command to love your neighbor as yourself, you know, or else, but a new command tied directly to Jesus' impending death. That's why this is not a law per se. It's not a law because there's no consequence or condition attached to it. Laws always have conditions and consequences attached, but you don't have that here. Jesus just invites us to, to, to live in a way that's reflective of his love for us. It's a calling to live out of the love that we've been shown as Christians, a love shown to us in spite of our inability to perfectly keep God's commandments. I was actually reading uh, this with my family this week, and my, my 13-year-old son said, this feels more like a promise, more like a promise than a commandment. This feels more like a promise to me than an actual commandment. And I was like, that's actually, I think, the point. And I told him I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's not like a commandment per se or a law per se because of the absence of a condition But instead, it's a promise that this will be the case. For those who know how much they're forgiven, we will just end up loving much. It will just happen. Like, the Bible talks in the New Testament about bearing fruit for that reason. The Old Testament doesn't talk in those terms. Because fruit is born just as a byproduct of something. It just happens, and we don't know exactly why. Um, But like the woman in Luke 7 who was, was forgiven much, she just ended up loving a lot. And, and the new commandment here, then, is this call to believe that that is true. It's a call to live as though it's true. Uh, and like John says in one of his letters to the church, different book, but same thing, and same author. He says, this is how we know what love is. Again, primarily defined by Jesus and by God, right? Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in the faith, for other Christians. This is how we know what love is. We look at Jesus, not ourselves. Jesus laid down his life for us. That's the epitome of love. And now we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters um, as a reflection of that greater love for us to put it on display. And then in verse 35, he kind of dials it up a bit. He says, uh, and, and this, basically I'll paraphrase, but he says, this love will also be an apologetic or a defense. It will be an expression of of the core of the Christian faith to those who are not yet my people. So Christians, but also out- outsiders as well, who are kind of looking in and wondering. Um, where he says here, people know that you're my followers, you're my disciples, and this is how they'll know if you love one another. And so the, the opposite's probably true as well, I think you could fairly say, right? If, if Christians, if we don't love other Christians well, um, it's, you know, it's a sign that, uh, to other people at least, that we're not his disciples, we're not his followers, uh, we're not in him uh, as much as we might claim to be. But I think what he's saying here is this, this is a really profound idea. This is one of those, um, I think it's actually probably best to let this kind of remain mysterious a little bit. We don't know exactly how this works, and I don't know if you guys have actually seen this practically play out in your lives or not, some of you probably have. Um, I've had both in my life where I'm like, I think this is maybe happening sometimes, uh, and I get wind of that a lot of times, and then sometimes I see it very directly, uh, where people are connecting those dots, even non-Christians, when they see Christians loving one another. But there's a lot of mystery to this, that when there's love happening, something deeply mystical and spiritual is happening in the room or the context, um, that really strikes at the heart of what the Christian life is all about, and so close to who God is, I would say, too. Um, as Christians, we believe in and worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is a relational being. Uh, and, and so when we love one another, um, we reflect that. We reflect that God is a, it is a relationship. He, the Father loves the Son, and, and then the Son loves us. And when we love one another, we put that, again, on display for people to see. And, um, and so... I think that's probably, you know, the, the farthest we can get with it is the reason why this is the case is that Christians are unique in how relational we believe our God is, to his core, I mean. Not that he, he values relationships outside of him, though he does, he wants to save us, but before he made anybody or anything, he was already a relationship because he existed as a trinity. And so, uh, as Christians then, we are, we are, you could say in one sense, uh, this might be hard for Westerners and, and Americans like us, but... Um, we're kind of anti individualists at, at the end of the day. Like, we don't, we shouldn't anyway really believe that Christianity is possible to truly li- live out on our own. Like, it's not truly possible to do that. Um, in one sense, belief wise, as we, uh, you know, ascribe to certain beliefs that are sufficient for our salvation, yes, but, but in terms of like what it looks like, you know, to actually live as a Christian, um, we're kind of unique in this regard. It's not just us in a book, in our closet, in quiet, prayerful, uh, candlelit meditation. Um, you know, uh, for, for most of history, there's different ways that this has looked. For most of history, Christians have been the opposite of that. Very communal, uh, very self sacrificial, um, very we're in this together. Even the New Testament, when it talks to Christians, it's always in the plural, second person plural. When it says, you all, have believed this. You all together have done this. You all together uh, have ascribed to this and, and are called to this. Uh, it's, it's never the, the singular, um, which is inter- very rarely the singular, which is really interesting. And so, so it really is that big a deal. I, I, would, I would go so far as to say this. Like, if you want to live a Christian life, you must love other Christians. Like, th- this, is, this is how strong of language this is for Jesus. Like, if you want to live a Christian life, Um, There are other things to say there, too, of course, but this is like top, right up there, top two, three things, is we must love other Christians. Uh, We must serve them. We must give of ourselves to them and consider them more important than ourselves, all because God has first done that to us. And that's actually at the core. And that's the gospel. You see, this is actually not the gospel. Verses 34 and 35 are not the gospel. They're, They're reflective of the gospel, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is that God has done this for us. He, God has emptied himself that we might be filled through his son, Jesus Christ. But this is, this is a, um, a, a close, like, planetary orbit type thing. It's right in there, t- you know, towards the center of something that when this is done well by God's grace, when we do this, um, we so much live out and so much put on center stage, the core of the faith, um, that we obey our Savior but uh, we also point to the gospel with our actions uh, in probably the best way po- that, that we can. few things are also more important for church cultures, I would say. This is, I'm not going to go too deep into this today, but you know, a few weeks ago, if you guys were here, we paused on John uh, to do a three-week series on, um, uh, if we were to pick three verses out of the Bible that kind of exemplify Hiawatha Church, our history, our vision, our values, what would they be? And this was one of the verses. Verse 34 was one of the verses like we picked because uh, it goes back to our vision, our planning for this church, our history, all that stuff. But also, I think by God's grace, uh, not at all to our credit, but God has been doing this. And, and, and to whatever degree we've seen this uh, here, to whatever degree we've been loved or we have loved others in this, in this community, um, this is a really big deal for us. And we thank God for it but we also uh, think it's, it's a mark of a healthy church. I've had people ask me, like, when they leave Hiawatha and move to, like, Kansas or Michigan or Pittsburgh or California or northern Minnesota, or, and those are actual places that p- people from Hiawatha have moved to in the past few years. So, um, but they've asked me, like, well, what, do I, what should I look for in a church? You know, as I, as I church shop in my new context, um, and that's usually what I tell them is, well, make sure they preach the gospel, make sure there's communion taken, and make sure that there's some semblance of Christian love in the church. And I think if you have that, you, you have something to, something to really put down roots in. Um, not perfect love. Christians hurt Christians all the time. That's kind of part of the point is, on one level, we can't do this. We can't do this that well. Uh, and that's why it's not the gospel. It's an outer rim issue. Um, But still, by God's grace, as he works and his spirit moves, um, as Christians love one another, it's a sign of the spirit's presence and a sign of our adherence to this new commandment that, that Jesus gives us. All right, then the last section is, ah, but in the meantime, you'll deny me three times. So that's not, you know, Jesus being a killjoy, it's Jesus being a truth speaker. And also kind of circling back to the first section of, Uh, This idea of there's there's something we can't do. Verses 37 and 38, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow. You you have denied me three times. All right. So Peter, God bless him, says, Lord, I will die for you. So still out there in like theological la-la land, he's flexing, making promises he can't keep. Um, you know, but, but to be fair, we wouldn't get it either. Uh, remember, John has made it clear that true understanding comes after the cross, not before, because the cross is how we understand things. The cross is the clarifying lens. It is, it is the thing that pulls up the veil. And so you, we can't understand the Old Testament. We can't understand Jesus' pre-cross teachings without the cross happening. So like in history when this is all transpiring, uh, Peter's not understanding yet, just like we wouldn't either, because he doesn't get it. It's like it's almost like the culmination of history, the, the clarifying agent, the, the, the red-tinted glasses to let you read the code on the cereal box hasn't fully come into history yet. But with that said, Peter, Jesus' chief disciple, the one who will eventually become the leader of the first church in Jerusalem, here he plays the role of the anti-Christian. Peter here is playing the role of the anti-Christian. This is why when he says something very similar, uh, remember after he confesses that Jesus is the Christ and, and Matthew 16 gets the right answer, and then Jesus starts talking about how he needs to die, and Peter says, I'll never let that happen to you. And then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. So sort of like, probably, that's kind of a, you know, sort of one of those low bar things, right? At least that, that I wasn't maybe called Satan today. But at the same time, uh, it, it's, we all would be there. It's sort of like Peter doesn't understand this necessary element. Jesus has to die, he has to die in the cross. And, and Peter's doing everything he can to prevent it. And this is kind of what's happening here uh, as well. He's playing the role of the ant. This is the, if you want to live in an anti Christian way, this is like what you do. You do everything you can to resist the cross you take Jesus off of it, you decentralize it, you water it down, you move on from it, you graduate from it, you think there's something else and something better and something more. That's to be Peter. That is to play the role of the anti, even if you are a Christian, it's to play the role of the anti-Christian with your thinking and with your theology. So his words aren't just empty, though they are, Jesus makes that clear, his words are also the epitome of promise based spirituality. Saying, I will die for you is not that far from saying, I will never sin again for you. I will never sin against you, Jesus. Or saying, I will go to the ends of the earth for you. Or I will do this or that for you, uh, making that the center. Those are really all the same kind of thing. It's a promise based, it's an us based way of living. Whether we do that before we're a Christian, as we're becoming, or after, it, they're, they're, they are all to be rejected. That we, it's not like we, we take on a promised based spirituality because we're Christians and because we can now. No, even in that part, we, we play the role of the anti-Christian. I remember my, in my earlier days as a Christian, not that I don't still struggle with this or anything, but I remember in my earlier days, I can literally remember, I used to journal a lot more than I do now. Um... And I, I was writing, writing a journal entry about what I was going to do for God, where I was going to go, um, where I was going to travel to, what type of missions work I was going to be involved in. And, um, and it's, it's interesting because none of it panned out. <laughs> um, you know, all the stuff I kind of said I was going to do for him, uh, very rarely does that, does that, I think, pan out in any of our lives. For me, it hardly ever did, maybe never did. Um, But then I think like later in my life, like when I planted this church, um, one of the 25 people who did, but when I planted as like the lead planter, I never said to God, I'm going to do this for you. Like that was never my thought process, that I'm going to do this for him. Um, I never journaled that, never prayed that, but it just happened. You know, it it was fruit uh, that was born uh, somehow through um, my, I guess, just availability and me just kind of standing there when everyone else stepped backwards. Um, and I wanted to do it. At first, I actually didn't want to. wanted to eventually. Um, but the things that have happened through me haven't come based on my promise and my willingness, but more in spite of, uh, in spite of my disobedience or in spite of my heartlessness and my, my lack of faith. Um, and I think as, as we mature as Christians, so this idea starts to get flipped. Um, as we mature, we don't make promises to God anymore. So, um, all due respect to the Promise Keepers movement, if you guys remember that, um, it, we don't make promises to God anymore. Um, and I actually do think that movement had big problems with it because of the whole, we're making promises to God. And I, and so I, but I think that's what happens. When we mature, we don't think in those terms, at least much less we do. We don't make vows to God. Actually, Matthew 5, 34, Jesus says, don't make promises to God. Moses said, make vows to God, because the law is based on us and and vow-making. But when Jesus comes, he changes it. He changes it. He moves on from it. New Testament, not Moses, Jesus. And Jesus says, you heard Moses say this about vows. What I'm saying to you is don't make vows to God, because you can't keep them. One, and you can't keep them. But two, that's not what what I'm here for is to teach you how to make promises to God with a fuller, more pure heart. I'm here to make promises to you. Jesus makes promises to us. He, he vows to always be there for us, no matter what. He promises to die and rise again. He promises to keep his word, right? That, and that doesn't, like, happen, and then all of a sudden, well, now it's back to you to make promises to God uh, about, you know, about whatever, as if that's, like, what we graduate onto. No, that's actually... The Sermon on the Mount is actually clear. Jesus says, "Don't make vows." This is this is this. The, the New Testament's here, and I'm changing things. The time of Moses is over. All right, so things get flipped, and and we develop a more, I think, with that, a Christian view of human nature, a low biblical anthropology. Um, this is actually why we sing the types of songs here that we do at our church as well. Um, Peter and I talk about this, all of our pastors do, about how we want most of our songs to be sung in the second person, not the first person. So we want our songs to be more like, God, you have done this for us. You are this way. You are this amazing. You are coming back someday. You have sent the Spirit. You have washed me of my sin. Rather than, uh, I will do this for you, or this is how I feel about you today, or I will fill in the blank, um, And sometimes we have the I's in there, but a lot of the the first persons are singing about our identities, like I am this in you, or this is true about me because of what you've done. That's a good way to use, we would say, the first person. But um, a lot of times Christian worship songs that have the first person just aren't worshipful because they're about you, and you aren't worshipful, nor am I. All right? And so, like, they might be okay songs to maybe, like, Whatever, sing at some point, maybe you like the melody, but throughout the week, but in church, uh, we're careful about the songs we sing. We 95 percent of our songs are in the second the functional second person, whether they sing we're singing to God and what He's done, so that you can sing that. even if you're not a Christian yet, you can sing that, and you might be able to sing that more than a first person, because um, you're singing about something outside of you. Um, and if you're a Christian as well, uh, same kind of idea. Um, just in in the sense that, you know, worship is about him, not about us and our response. All right. Uh, but at the end of the day, though, um, this is what I'd say about Peter. Uh, Peter just didn't understand the gospel yet. And that's not like, you know, um, we're ribbing on Peter or anything here. It's, uh, again, he's, he couldn't have understood it. He was blind to it, like we would have been too. But he's an example of how playing that role of the anti-Christian of how he just didn't understand the gospel yet. His false promise of I will lay down my life for you just stands in stark contrast to the million things Jesus says elsewhere. Here's one of them in John 10. We already said this, uh, and Peter was there, where he says the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus being that shepherd and and us being the sheep. So that's a stark contrast. Those can't go together. Uh, It's oil and water. Um, And if you think about it, actually, Peter's misunderstanding isn't all that different from Judas. It's just another kind of rejection. I wrote this out here for clarity. Uh, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter rejects Jesus' help. Judas sold him out. Peter will deny him. And denying isn't just saying, I don't know him. It's saying, I'm okay on my own. Like, I can do things for you. Um, Then, if if you think about it, remember last week we talked about this, how uh, John describes himself in this passage, John the author, um, where he's just the one who's leaning against Jesus, but he doesn't say his name, remember that? He describes himself as the one Jesus loved. And he's just there, leaning up against Jesus, uh, you know, relaxing, receiving, listening, listening. I think John is this picture of the right response. Uh, Judas and Peter are kind of extremes themselves of like the wrong response to Jesus. But John's just sitting there as this leaning against Jesus, anonymous, unnamed, humble, receptive, and restful disciple. That is the one to copy. If you want to copy somebody, he's the one. There's this sweet spot between rejecting Jesus and having too much zeal for Jesus, like Peter. It's like, it's possible to have too much zeal. Peter's the example of that. John is just sitting there not making any spiritual promises, nothing like that, no big Christian conferences, none of this, whoa, we're going to take the hill for Jesus, all this stuff. None of that, he's just there with him, receiving, resting the one-way love. And, and he's the one that I think is celebrated. He's the one that, that gets it right here. And Peter's going to come around. We know this. We know, we know his story arc and how it ends. It ends really well, thank God. Not for Judas, but for Peter. But at this point, Peter doesn't have it right. Like his zeal to fight for Jesus and fight for God, is the, it's, it's too much. It's the wrong kind and it's too much. John has it right. All right, so, so the question of, like, Lord, to go back to this question of Peter, Lord, why can't I follow you? Um, Jesus says two things. One, well, you will follow me one day, which he's saying one day you will die for being a Christian. Like, you're, you're, you're going to be hated by the world just like I am, and you will follow me because you will die and be, you'll be martyred. Um, but now you can't. In this, that's another thing, because right now in this moment, you can't follow me because I love you too much. This goes back to how I talked about love, not lesson. Um, love and lessons are different. There's a time for lessons, certainly. It's a time, time for being taught, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is love. Um, and love and lessons are, are different. They, they wear you know, um, saviors and teachers just wear different hats, you know. Um, This is kind of a morbid example, so just bear with me. Um, But I was thinking this week about, like, a a teacher, a a grade school teacher, teaching his kids about leadership, and then a gunman comes in the room uh, seeking to, to kill students or teachers or anybody, and the teacher puts his body in harm's way, taking bullets for the kids. Like, in that moment, The teacher switches from being a teacher to not teaching about lessons anymore, but being a savior. Like, he's not being a teacher in that moment, he's being a bullet taker. He's being something else altogether. A savior. uh, One who fights. And one, in this case, who loves. And Jesus does the same thing. He He has both hats, but he's ultimately the latter. And when he's dying for us, he's not teaching us a lesson on, well, now you can do this for me later. Or... I'm going to show you what it means to be to live a, mar- a martyr kind of life so you can go do that for people, and that's, that's like the epitome of Christianity. No, he's saying, no, I'm taking bullets for you because I love you, and my act is what saves you. I want you to demonstrate this to each other in, in, in loving the church and sacrifici- fe- sacrificially dying for each other, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is me uh, taking bullets for you. And so... What I love about how this ends then is Jesus, if you think about it, Jesus is about to die for the denier and about to forgive his denial in Peter and to save him. And, you know, if there is a final word here, I would say that Jesus' death is the final word for all of your life as well. Uh, It's not, you know, to go back to Peter or us too, but it's not Peter's brash vows is denials or poor theology, but it's Jesus' death. Um, and so if you're a Christian today or not a Christian, whatever you've done or not done in life, Jesus' death is the final word for you. He's, it's always the final word. Your life is not the final word. Your perfect response, your obedience, not the final word. The final word is Jesus' love for you. His act of self-sacrifice. Uh, the Bible actually calls Jesus' blood a better word. It speaks a better word than all other words. N- not all words of the Bible are the same, because it's actually referring to other words from Scripture. It's saying there are better words and there are lesser words. And Jesus' word is final. Your identity as a son or daughter of the king doesn't fluctuate then with your spiritual fluctuations or your moral fluctuations or your faith fluctuations. Isn't that good news? Steady, unchanging, like we sang about before with the gospel, never changes. Jesus went to war for you, uh, so you can rest, like John. So the war inside of you, if you're a Christian, you feel this like I do, this war inside of you between good and evil is something that he has already taken care of so it's not up to you, so you can rest easy. Uh, And rest easy like John, leaning against Jesus, who's trusting, believing, receiving, and looking for opportunities daily to love others the way that we've first been loved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the kind of part three here to a three-part series of um, John's Last Supper passage. Uh, We thank you for the beauty in it, the gospel in it, the grace in it. Uh, we thank you for the calling, uh, the high calling to exemplify your love uh, to each other, that we get to do that uh, in, in this life. And um, I pray for myself and everyone here that that would be something we're prompted by your spirit daily. Uh, as we think about life in this church, we think about um, having a home in a Christian community and what that means uh, to think about loving and serving uh, you, but not to replace that with the gospel. The gospel is you loving us the gospel is you uh, being denied uh, unto calvary being rejected by your close friends uh, suffering and taking on hell on that cross for us uh, and dying as our substitute Um, god help us to sing and respond uh, in gladness and to remember that you are um, the one who deny who denies himself uh, the one uh, on comfort all the way to the cross the one who dies for deniers like us, uh, people who have denied you with our words or our lives, um, who have lived faithless lives, who have sinned, uh, who have harmed others, Um, even as Christians, like, we can look at that one verse and think, well, I have not loved Christians that well. Uh, So we ask for forgiveness of that and to look at the cross as the center and not our love. Um, But again, thank you, God. As love always leads to pain, uh, love and and suffering always go together. Um, We see that perfectly on the cross, Uh, not perfectly in our life for the church, but perfectly on the cross. Uh, In your name we pray, amen.